Have you ever thought about how to sow doubt amongst the doubters around you? Have you ever wondered how to undermine the fundamental conviction of atheists and skeptics? Stick tuned. We've got some of that for you today. Slava Isusu Christ, glory to Jesus Christ. This is your host, Christopher, with the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. If you haven't already, check out our website, www.theufcshow.com. Learn a little bit more about us, some of the platforms that we're on, and ways that you could support us if you were interested. Man, do I have an awesome episode for you today. I'd kind of hinted about a, a work in a previous episode written by Joseph Ratzinger back in the uh, 1960s. And I'm going to give you a little quote from that and use that as the prompt of our discussion today. Who was Joseph Ratzinger? I, I think most people probably know him by his later name, Pope Benedict. Uh, currently Pope Emeritus Benedict. But um, what an amazing theologian. One of the things that most actually inspired me was reading his memoirs, and I hope we can get into one of those in a future episode. His, uh, his memoirs tell a truly personal side of this mythical question of a figure that he really is. There's so much to his personality and so much humanity there that I think is often overlooked in a lot of pro or anti-Catholic polemics, whether that's the modern Western popular cult of the Pope, where uh, he, he's almost esteemed as a god in certain pietistic cultures, um, you know, that really kind of step away a little bit from the Catholic faith and its proper understanding. But there is also a lot overlooked in uh, certain aspects of, you know, Protestant and, and secularist anti-Catholic polemic that really fail to see some of the beauty of the humanity of the church and her leaders and some of the great men. Uh, and, and he is definitely one of those figures. So the, the work that I'm quoting from was his book, Introduction to uh, Christianity, which was written, you know, back in the early years of his priesthood. Uh, he was a budding theologian, well-respected figure. And I'm just going to go ahead and get straight into it. What is he talking about? In this particular passage, he is recalling uh, an example of uh, an encounter between this uh, Jewish rabbi and uh, a figure of the Enlightenment. Uh, it's an old Jewish story that was uh, told by Martin Buber. And uh, rather than kind of rehash it and paraphrase it, I want to give you a short little quote from it. We'll, we'll get into it. It is not until belief is rejected that its unrejectability becomes evident. It may not be appropriate at this point, uh, it may be appropriate at this point to recall a Jewish story told by Martin Buber. It presents in concrete form the above-mentioned dilemma of being a man. An inherent, an inherent of the Enlightenment, a very learned man who had heard of the rabbi, paid a visit in, to him in order to argue, as was this particular man's custom. He wanted to shatter his old-fashioned proofs of the truth of the rabbi's faith. When he entered the rabbi's room, he found him walking up and down with a book in his hand, wrapped in thought. The rabbi ignored him, looked at him, and said, well, perhaps it is true after all. 
this, uh, and now I'm paraphrasing, this modernist uh, figure you know, tried to gather himself. He became very upset, uh, was terrible utterance to hear, and uh, his knees trembled. But the rabbi turned back around and, and spoke quite calmly, quote, My son, the great scholars of the Torah with whom you have argued wasted their words on you. As you departed, you laughed at them because they are unable to lay out God and his kingdom on the table before you, and neither can I. Think, my son, perhaps it is true. The exponent of the Enlightenment opposed him with all of his strength, but this terrible perhaps echoed back at him time and time again and broke his resistance. Ratzinger goes on, in quoting, and uh, Ratzinger goes on to d- describe about how he thought, uh, he believed that, however, however strange a guise, a very precise description of situation of man is confronted with the question of God. No one can put God and his kingdom on the table before another. Now, what I want to say is fascinating here, in my own personal commentary, is there is a ton of Eucharistic imagery here that is certainly worth getting into in, uh, in, in Catholic symbolism and, and Christian symbolism. But what is amazing here is that there is this profound humility on the part of the rabbi in dealing with matters of divine revelation and dealing with matters of faith, saying the same thing, basically. He was honest enough to say, look, you know, um, God calls you to live a life of faith. He calls you to step into a relationship with him with the most beautiful thing that separates you from every other animal on this earth, and that is your mind, and to use your mind to find and to seek him. If he was perceptible to the senses, and this is my uh, reflection, you would probably fall dead on your face. I mean, that's pretty much how Scripture describes a lot of the people's encounters, not only with God, but even with angels and other such things. But there's this profound humility of saying that, you know, when it comes to... Uh, mysterious aspects, uh, the, the, the hiddenness of the creator behind creation. And we can get into debates about what exactly all that means. But in all of these aspects, there is a profoundly mystical element that requires us to approach it with a recognition of our own limitations. And this, this enlightenment figure in the story wanted nothing to do with that. He was puffed up with pride, but he was also really trying to grasp at everything the senses could offer. And I can't fault him for that. There is a profound amount of reliance that we have on our senses. I mean, we rely on them to make sure that we don't walk out in front of buses, to make sure that we pay our bills on time to make sure that we invest in this and that and the other, to make sure that our fruit is not, you know, poisoned or, or, or foul um, or, you know, covered in mold when we buy it at the store. There's a profound reliance that we have on our senses. And this Enlightenment uh, figure certainly had, in one sense, a completely justified frustration with the rabbi's inability. But what really got him was the great perhaps – And I think that is the theme that I have of this show and the title I've given it, The Great Perhaps. That whole, you have convinced yourself this is absolutely the case. But, 
as I talked about in a previous episode, you know that you're not your own divine physician. You know you didn't create yourself. At one point, you were not. At one point, Christopher was not. At one point, I was not. There were my parents. Before them, at one point, they were not. Their parents. And so there's this recognition of this self-honesty of, yes, there's something I can't explain. But we tend to overlook that. It's just this question of, well, perhaps there's something you're missing. Perhaps there's something I'm missing. Now, one would not necessarily say that the rabbi was apostating and, and denying his faith in God and the rest of this. He's just simply saying, there obviously is an aspect to your encounter with God, a perhaps, that can't be explained in, in the realm of the senses, that can't be explained in the categories that you reduce your life to. I think this is uh, something I want to get into a little bit more. If you recall from one of our earlier episodes, one of the things that we talked about was this question of death and this question of the great unknown that happens afterwards, this, this issue of the loss of control, the loss of control over our lives. And to be honest, we all have that reality that we have to struggle with. When we think about this subject, Let's take an example from one of the early writers in Christianity, Paul, who made the statement, if Christ has risen from the dead, then death has been trampled by death. And he also made uh, this statement, if Christ has not risen, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. That's an example from Paul of this great perhaps that is a rhetorical question trying to get you to realize that your current state does not open you to this alternative vision to our life that may in fact be the actual reality that you are out of touch with. Is your vision, as it's been in your upbringing, whether that's modern society, whatever your faith tradition is, are you truly seeking after the truth of the reality in the, of the world that we live in? In what faith, particularly in the story of the rabbi, proposes to the world through this perhaps is that there is something that cannot be known even by the greatest of philosophers. In the experience of death and suffering, there is the transformative process, a great unknown that awaits us. And it's unsettling. It doesn't mean that there aren't natural arguments for the immortality of the soul, or even that these arguments only show that men would be in an abiding state that's incomplete, as they say, with just the soul existing and the body not existing. And these arguments really don't address the other questions of justice and glory and other, other things that are touched on in religious arguments. Or even in arguments from natural justice of what should happen to child killers and uh, child uh, abductors and things like that. The word perhaps, I think, has been chosen by me for a specific reason. It's not really meant to relativize Christian truth. It's not really meant to relativize my own view of the world or my belief in the resurrection. But I choose it, and I'll 
uh, I use it because it shocks the reality of the worldly and even sometimes in Christian circles, this self-confidence that we have all of the answers and we don't. Remember that was one of the themes we talked about is the difficulty of no easy answers. Now, I need to clarify the world does claim that it has some responses to the question of death. But I want to ask you, are, are these answers really satisfying? We have a widespread nihilism in our culture, in our society, in public. It's proclaimed. I myself even used to proclaim this when I was an evangelical Marxist atheist. And I must admit, it is quite disingenuous from the experience of these same individuals in private and I cannot drive this home enough. You know, when, when a, a Christian believer asserts, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, the unbeliever ignores this and just goes upon on their business. However true this assertion may be, which any perceptive truth seeker may hear and may see and may begin to try to struggle to grasp their mind around it, the truth is and the reality is that we live in a society that has a very difficult time with affirmative assertions. I mean, unless you're dealing with used car salesmen, right? I think the big issue is that we have a difficult time with assertions because we ourselves do not feel comfortable and do not have a virtuous habit of asking good questions. We don't like assertions when we're not asking questions because when we're not asking questions, we're not looking for answers. And I think that if we begin with questions, and we begin with a questioning mind and a spirit of inquiry, which is one of the focuses I want to try to do with this show, it gets a little bit easier for us to jumpstart the dead body of modern American conscience, of a worldly conscience, of a lukewarm believer's conscience. However, the subtlety, as opposed to just this assertion that the subtle influence of the great perhaps, if we could put it in this way, or if we ask the question, then what happens is their mind wants to jump to the conclusion. We lead them right up to the edge. And their mind knows the next step that's coming. And we leave them hanging. And they can't deny wanting to know where that conversation goes. It's like any argument with a spouse or with a friend. When you walk away with it hanging with that mic drop, they just want to keep going down that train. They just want to keep taking that train down those tracks to that destination. And you've left them frustrated. And they're wanting to go there. They can't stand when you do this. And if you think about it, and if you study this, and this is why I want to bring aspects of history and philosophy and literature into this show, is that if you study the Gospels, if you study the great thinkers of paganism, Socrates, Plato, numerous other literature writers in the medieval period, asking questions was something the greatest figures did. It was something that Jesus did was something that Socrates did, and it got both of them murdered. Jesus would ask questions, and 
the mind would be given the opportunity to exercise itself of the people he was questioning. And sometimes it would even be the first time that person's mind might be working. And the problem is the action's unavoidable. The, the human response to being asked a question, to give you an example, if I were to say, don't think of a pink elephant right now, by saying those words, you have that image of an elephant that's a, a whatever shade color of pink in your mind. I've led your mind there, but I didn't tell you to think about it. I told you not to think about it. Or if I were to say, what do you think about a pink elephant? You've got that picture in your mind. Your mind has been led there. You can't deny that. So if we go to this issue in the story with the rabbi, when you are looking at nihilism and when you're looking at the values and stuff that's proclaimed, particularly in our our modern Western American uh, public sphere, the thing is that Individuals, even myself as an atheist, in private, we have this reflective experience, even if we deny it to others. And it was that real personal engagement that I had with the great perhaps, with a Christian evangelist many years ago, that started unsettling all of my self-confidence. Those who seriously struggle with the implications of assertion, those who somewhat care or really truly care to find and seek the truth will struggle and will consider accepting the implications of the possibility perhaps he is right. Those who don't want to, there's, there's nothing that you, know, you can do to help them. But, How can we put the key in the ignition? We can ask that question, the great perhaps. We can challenge the modern certitude, much in the same way that our faith is challenged by others. Except the difference is the doubters really don't care about the truth. They care about proving you to be wrong, like in any argument. It's about winning. Well, at least the people who want to win the argument, but the real good arguments are not about winning. They're about discovering. They're about not just being found to be right, but in reality, actually being right. It's not about the respect. It's not about the triumph. It's not about the success. It's not about the conquering. It's not about the showmanship. And if we learn from the philosophers of ancient Rome, ancient Greece, if we study these wide, wise men who thought out natural answers to the question of death, to other questions of life, and many other people over the course of human history, we find that in this hidden reality, they don't have that many great answers. I mean, Socrates and some of Plato's works have some insights that are worth getting into in a future episode, but our contemporary society doesn't even want to consider these pagans' beliefs or natural positions. In summary, you have this this great struggle with the question of what is the world that I'm living in? What is the truth that I'm living in? The question and the struggle that Pontius Pilate dealt with, what is truth? 
And then he quickly went into saying, well, my truth is. How easy is it for us to fall into that trap? This comes back to something that I've hit on before. There are no easy answers, no simple answers. And I think one of the things in the story of the rabbi is that he had the wisdom to realize for as much as we know and not only know but can prove, that's a great quote that any lawyer would tell you is sometimes it's not always what you know but what you prove. And the great frustration there is that the real honest person says, it's not always what you can prove, it's what the reality is. Like, I don't care whether a court says that guy's guilty or not, if the guy's actually guilty. Now, I'm not saying we throw justice out the window, but the person who struggles with their great questions of finding judgment on a murder or a robber or something like that is, it's not about the arguments in court, it's really about the question, did the guy do it? And the great frustration is when you know that he did it, because you witnessed it and you saw it, and you have no questions of identity, you are not impaired, you, you, you have no subjective failings in knowing the truth of what happened. But if you can't prove it, there's that great frustration. And I want you to think about how our good Lord has given us this opportunity to sit in the jury and to try to discover the truth. I think that's one of the things in this story that whether it's in philosophy, whether it's in other great fields of study, that we must have this awareness and knowledge and this experience of truth, um, even though much of it is still veiled. I want to suggest there is a radical paradox for us that in one sense we are in control of our lives and another we are not in slightly different senses of the word. It's, it's very easy to get confused. How are we not in control but in control? Well, obviously there are things that family we're born into, when we're born, where we're born, the moment of our death, for the most part, our health, our genetic defects. These we're not in control of. But there's so much that we are. And there's this dichotomy of having these aspects of what we are and are not in control over, but yet we're still responsible for ultimately making the decision with what we do with our life. And it is that great question, the great perhaps, that challenges us to reflect, that challenges us to seek, that challenges us to want to let go of ourselves and to reach out and to really try to get our great questions answered. And the other alternative, we can just go grab a beer and sit in the Lazy Boy and, you know, veg out to a bunch of television. But is that really the good life? Is that the, the great life? Is that the life Michael Staley chose? Is that the life Father Michael Judge chose? Is that the life we're called to? Is that the life that gives us the opportunity to bear witness to an amazing God of love who took upon our struggles and will enable us to overcome everything we could have ever feared we would face? This is your host, Christopher. If you liked today's episode, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. Also, click the bell for notifications on future content. 
If you haven't already, check out our website, theufcshow.com, ways that you can support us and find us on other platforms. Until next time. <laughs>